The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. When Paul Shapiro took his first bite of clean meat in 2014, more humans had gone into space than had eaten real meat grown outside an animal. So I guess you could say that our first guest on today's program is an eco-astronaut. I'm Victoria (laughs) Moran, host of the program. I hope you love our new intro music. Last week, if you go to the archives and look on uh, January 10th, 2018, you'll hear an interview with Rob Mills, who's the songwriter. And if you want to hear the whole song, it's Vegan Girls with a Z. And you can go to YouTube and see that along with clips that various women from around the world sent in to say, yeah, we're vegan girls and we're hot. So today, after the break, we're going to be talking with a couple of vegan bodybuilders, Ed Bauer and Holly Nall. But right now, we are going to be talking in with this person who took a bite of something extraordinary. Paul Shapiro founded Compassion Over Killing and served 13 years as vice president for the Humane Society of the United States. He's a TEDx speaker and inductee into the Animal Rights Hall of Fame. And he has just been writing and writing articles about animals that have shown up everywhere from daily newspapers to academic journals. And he is a brand new author with his stunning book from Simon & Schuster, Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World. Welcome, Paul Shapiro. Victoria, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of Ed and Holly's, and I'm kind of like a wannabe bodybuilder. You wouldn't notice it by looking at my body, but I do wish that I looked like like they do. So uh, my hat is off to them, but I'm honored to be on the same show as them as well. Oh, that's so cool. I love it that sometimes we still know one another. It used to be that if you were vegan, you pretty much knew every vegan. (laughs) And (laughs) those days are thankfully over, and yet it's really fun when when we still have these connections. So, okay, clean meat. What the heck is that? We don't know what that is. Yeah, well, first, I just want to say I love it when I go to a vegan restaurant in some city and I don't run into anybody I know. It's like I think, (laughs) wow, we're really growing. Um, but let me answer your question directly because clean meat, a lot of people haven't heard of it. They don't know what it is. So, um, this new book I've written called clean meat is about growing real meat, not alternatives to meat, not substitutes for meat, growing real meat without animals. So it is really a matter of taking animal cells and growing meat from those cells rather than raising a whole animal just to slaughter that animal. So right now the way of getting meat, we, 
raise animals, these whole live feeling sentient animals, largely torment them for their whole lives and then slaughter them and break them down into the component parts of their body. With clean meat, it's the opposite. There's no living sentient animals. And instead, we're growing the meat really from the tissue up as opposed to breaking the whole organism down. So this is not science fiction. It is now science fact. There is a new industry called cellular agriculture where there's about a dozen startups, many of them with millions of dollars or even tens of millions of dollars of funding to help produce this type of meat that is far more efficient, far more uh, resource respectful, far more humane, and certainly far safer for consumption as well. So how did you get interested in this? Well, the problem is that everybody listening to this show presumably knows that the factory farming of animals is a leading cause of so many environmental ills, certainly for animal cruelty, but it's also a leading cause of climate change, air, water, soil pollution, resource depletion, and, and so many other problems that our species and indeed our planet faces. And you would hope that just learning about those facts would be enough to persuade people to eat less or no meat. Unfortunately, meat consumption is on the rise, not the decline. Meat consumption is going up, and so is human population. So when you have both the number of people is increasing and the number of people eating a lot of meat is increasing, it is truly a catastrophic recipe. So there has to be some solution. Now, let's think about past solutions to serious animal welfare problems. 150 years ago, nearly every home in the country was lit with whale oil. And we had a huge industry of whaling. It was one of the biggest lobbies in the pre-Civil War era was the whaling lobby. Well, what ended up freeing whales? It wasn't sustainability concerns, though there were real concerns about uh, depleting the oceans of whales. Many people were concerned about extinction even 150 years ago. But about the same time that Abraham Lincoln was saving the Union, a Canadian geologist named Abraham Gesner was saving the whales. And what Gesner did was... He invented kerosene, and within just a couple of decades, the whaling industry was decimated, shrinking by 95%. Think about what happened for horse-drawn carriages. Horses used to be our primary means of labor and transportation for millennia. In fact, the animal protection movement in the United States really got founded in the late 1860s and 70s because of concerns over the treatment of horses in our city's streets. Well, what were they campaigning for? There were people like Henry Berg, the founder of the ACA, were campaigning for mandatory resting hours for horses, Sabbath days in which they couldn't be worked, watering stations, and more. But it wasn't Henry Berg who liberated horses. It was Henry Ford. Henry <laughs> invented a, a better means, rendering the horse-drawn carriage totally obsolete. So you look at these types of examples and you realize that scientific innovations like kerosene or like the internal combustion engine really ended, or virtually ended, exploitative industries. It wasn't humane sentiment. It wasn't sustainability concern. It was a technological innovation. And we see that time and time again in other areas too. And in the case of farm animals, it may just be that what frees them from factory farms and slaughter plants is not humane sentiment, which of course is very important, but rather a technological innovation. And that could be plant-based meats as they continue to improve and explode in popularity, but it also could be clean meats. And we want to have both options because the problem is so severe. For sure. Now, when you said that meat consumption is up, my understanding is that is globally, that it has been going down in the U.S.? True, false? It used to be going down uh, for many years, uh, for about seven or so years in the United States, per capita meat consumption was declining. However, in the past year or so, it has begun ticking up again. Now, this is largely not based on increased demand for meat, but rather that the meat industry has overproduced, which depresses prices. And so whenever prices of, of meat goes down, people eat more of it. And so it's not that there's this uh, desire of people to eat more meat, but when the price of meat goes down, people do eat more of it. And uh, that's the real problem right now. So even in the U.S., meat per capita meat consumption in the last year or so has actually gone up. But even bigger than that is, yes, you're right, Victoria, across the world, in the, the countries that have the fastest growing populations, we're looking at countries like China or India or Brazil, meat consumption is going up like a rocket. And as these countries expand their middle classes, one of the very first things people do when they leave poverty and enter the middle class is they start eating more meat because meat is associated with a diet of affluence. 
There's a reason why the richer nations on the planet eat a lot of meat and the poorer nations eat far less meat because meat is a very resource-intensive food to produce. So we have these two problems that by 2050, we're going to have probably 9 to 10 billion people on the planet compared to 7.5 billion now. And a lot of those people are going to be eating more meat on a per-person basis than uh, than people are today where they live or where they will be living once they're on the planet. And the planet's not getting any bigger. The planet is remaining a small, tiny, pale blue dot. And we have to figure out something that can obviate or that can really render factory farming obsolete. And if it's not going to be purely for ethical or environmental reasons, what other reasons could there be? Well, a technological innovation could just be what we need to help accelerate the demise of factory farming. Well, it sounds wonderful to me. I do want to ask you a devil's advocate question. I was talking with a scientist who was saying that he questions the viability of this process because it's not as easy to produce this kind of thing as it might appear. How Mm -hmm. likely is it that these products are going to exist in the foreseeable future on a mass production scale? Well, it depends on which products, because you definitely, if you're thinking about whole cuts of meat, like a T-bone steak or a whole chicken breast, they don't know how to do that yet. Uh, But these companies are growing ground meat. Think more like meatballs, chicken nuggets, hamburgers, hot dogs, sausages. It's a huge portion of the amount of meat that people eat is in ground form, and they can produce it. It's not a matter of figuring out how to produce it. The key is now to figure out how to produce it for a lot less money than it takes to produce it now the very first clean burger was produced in 2013 for a price tag of around three hundred and thirty thousand dollars um now they're producing meatballs for around twelve hundred dollars a pop now you know comparatively that's a pretty good bargain but it's still uh, a little bit higher than you want to get onto italian restaurant menus so for people who profess that they're wedded to actual animal meat, uh, clean meat may indeed be a solution for them, but probably not in the very immediate term, like in 2018. But in the next few years, they may indeed have that option available to them. But there are other products that are going to be coming out. Uh, for example, clean leather will be on the market in some form in 2018. A company called Modern Meadow, based in New Jersey, is already producing it. They're going to be selling it. In fact, um, if somebody is interested now, we just announced that the first copy of the book Clean Meat has been bound in clean leather. So this is the oh, first wow. time in history ever that a book has been bound in real leather that was grown without a cow. And the book is available now on eBay. That book, that copy of the book, which is signed is available on eBay for any bidder who wants a piece of this history or maybe even a piece of the future, if you will. Uh, there is one bid on it already. It's $10,000. Um, but if you want it, uh, you want that piece of history, there's certainly somebody who I think is willing to pay you, who's willing to pay more than 10000 So wow. it's, it's entirely a benefit for the Good Food Institute, which is the oh. nonprofit charity devoted to advancing cellular agriculture. And so if you want to make that donation to the Good Food Institute and have this piece of history in your home that you can show off to all your friends, again, the first ever book bound in real leather grown outside of a cow, this is your chance. (laughs) Well, I've always said that books were priceless, but maybe not quite. (laughs) (laughs) This This one literally is so. I know that some uh, animal people have, have expressed concern. If you need animal cells to do this, do you need some animals? Is there going to be any animal killing involved in this process? Well, it depends on which products we're talking about. So for, for some products like milk or egg whites or gelatin or leather, you don't even need any animal starter cells at all. You can simply grow from the molecule up these products. And um, there are companies like Perfect Day, which is making milk, or Clara Foods, which is making egg whites, or Geltor, which is making gelatin and collagen, uh, that you can do that. You don't need any animal starter cells. For meat, though, you really do need starter cells, but a tiny sesame seed-sized biopsy of animal cells can produce literally thousands of tons of meat. So if you believe that even that minuscule amount of uh, actual animal tissue that came from an animal's body is a problem, then clean meat isn't for you. But considering that more than 9 out of 10 people in America and closer to 99% of people on Earth don't have any problem eating animals on a regular basis at all, uh, this is a way to produce meat 
with virtually no harm to animals and huge amounts of resource efficiency gains as well. Because think about it, right now, in order to produce meat, you have to grow an entire animal. That means the hooves, the eyeballs, the intestines, the skeletons, all the stuff that people don't really care that much about. Whereas if you're just growing the meat, you don't need nearly as many resources. This is why an Oxford University study that was published a few years ago found that producing clean beef compared to conventional beef would require 99% less land, over 90% fewer greenhouse gas emissions, and more than 90% less water as well. So you're talking about major environmental gains. Now, the purpose, of course, is not for vegans to eat it. Vegans aren't the target market. Uh, we don't care about people displacing their Beyond Meat burgers with uh, with queen meat. That would not be a real gain. Uh, but what would be a gain is if meat eaters switch over. And that's the real goal of the queen meat industry. Oh, absolutely. So you've said that you're moving into the food tech world for the next phase of your career. So you're moving from nonprofit to, gosh, the great adventure that doesn't yet have an end. Why <laughs> did you do this? You're right, Victoria. So I've spent over 20 years working in, in the animal protection field, and I love the animal protection movement. And I've been so proud to be a part of so many advances for animals that my colleagues and friends have uh, been spearheading, and it's it's been the honor of my life to be a part of it. And of course, I'll always uh, be a part of, of the movement to advance the interests of animals. At the same time, I really have bought the argument that animals need technologies that will accelerate the the progress that we're making for them. Uh, I think that's true in the animal experimentation realm, where we need in vitro technologies that can give us better results than animal experiments and therefore uh, will render animal experimentation even more obsolete than it already is. And I think the same is so for uh, farm animals as well. I think it's pretty clear that by having plant-based meats and clean meats, that we will be able to offer an alternative that hopefully one day will be cost competitive, that will similarly uh, make a factory farm seem as antiquated as a whaling ship, or maybe we'll make a slaughterhouse knife appear as much of a relic of a technologically primitive past as a, uh, you know, as a horse-drawn carriage. Um, that's my goal. And so I wrote this book largely as an exploration of this new field of cellular agriculture to help explain this new field to people, since most people have never heard it. Um, but I do intend, after after uh, the release of this book is over, to focus more of my energies on advancing these fields of food technology, whether it's plant-based or clean. Uh, I really think that these fields offer so much potential to do good for farm animals and there are a lot of people working to help farm animals in the conventional way in terms of uh, typical farm animal advocacy, which I love and is needed. But I also think that there's just so much room for acceleration of this process through food technology that I'm excited to become a part of it myself. Oh, I, it is so exciting, Paul. You know, even with a really healthy vegan diet, I always thought you are not going to live to see a vegan world. It's cool <laughs> that you can be part of bringing it about. But with what you're talking about, unless people wanted to play with the terms and say, well, you're not vegan if you eat clean meat, <laughs> we could all live to see a vegan world, which is just about the coolest thing ever. Oh, Yeah, I'll I mean, it, it depends on how you... It depends on how you define vegan. Frankly, I'm, I'm less concerned with the personal identity label. I mean, for me, I became vegan in 1993 because of a concern of preventing violence against animals. Uh, clean meat does seem to obviate that concern for the most part. And it's not a panacea. It doesn't solve every single problem associated uh, with meat or with food production. But it's such a huge advancement that, yeah, I mean, I think that most people, if they had been, let's say, living in the um, 1870s, could have never imagined that they would live to see a time when there wouldn't be horses on city streets anymore. Yeah. Yet, yet that happened very quickly. Yes. In fact, just within about a decade of the Model T coming out, there were more cars than horses on the roads. That is so uh, exciting. You know, for people who had lit their homes for centuries with whale oil, it was unimaginable that this behemoth of an industry would be decimated within just a couple decades, and yet 
it happened. Well, looks like we're going to decimate another one. Paul, our time is up. This is fascinating. The book, everybody, is Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World. We will put on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net links to all Paul's social media, uh, the website, cleanmeat.com. We'll put uh, Paul's TEDx talk up there. Thank you so much, and may you seriously change the world. Thank you, Victoria. (laughs) Thank you. Everybody else, stay with us. We're going to build some bodies right after this. If Unity Online Radio has helped you grow spiritually through programs like this one, please consider supporting this online radio programming. Visit www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. Thank you for helping us continue to serve as the voice of an awakening world. What if you could start each day with a positive outlook, remembering you are a divine expression of God? Daily Word is a booklet of daily devotionals offering positivity that's downright contagious. With a print subscription or by email, you can pause to reflect on how to practice spirituality in your human experience. Reading Daily Word takes about a minute a day, so you can feel uplifted every morning. Visit dailyword.com to subscribe. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet? And be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. Notice how the funniest things happen when we stop taking ourselves too seriously and step out boldly? Listen to Funniest Thing with Daryl and Ed as these unlikely saints administer a refreshing dose of laughter and love that will inspire you to step out boldly and experience the funniest things. Join the discussion with Daryl and Ed live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Central Time on Funniest Thing, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. You heard me jump the gun there. I'm not quite used to our new jazzy music, but I love it. I love it. So you are listening to the Main Street Vegan program where we cover every aspect of vegan living. And now we're going to get into some of the health and fitness parts with Ed Bauer who started weightlifting in 1995 with the encouragement of his father, a competitive powerlifter. This is when he learned the importance of exercise on overall health. He became vegan one year later after learning about the inhumane practices that are involved in raising animals for food. Combining these two interests led to an understanding of plant-based nutrition and sports performance. In 2006, he became a certified personal trainer. In 2010, a champion bodybuilder. He owned and operated Plant Fit Training Studio for two years before moving to the Bay Area of California in 2013. And now with his partner, Holly Knoll, who just might be joining us in a little bit too, uh, open New Ethics Strength and Conditioning in Oakland. Welcome, Ed Bauer. 
Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's lovely to hear from you. I think you may be, you and Kenneth Williams, the first vegan bodybuilders that I even heard about. So when you say that you were bodybuilding for a year and then became a vegan, you must have had everybody in the gym telling you you were nuts. Well, at that time, um, we actually, the gym that I was working out in was this, uh, my dad owned this apartment, like this hotel in North Carolina. So he actually took over one of the, the old rooms and turned it into a gym. So we didn't really have too many workout partners back then, but, um, literally I didn't know a single other person who was vegan and lifting weights at that time. And I, I didn't hear about anyone else who was vegan and lifting weights until probably like five or six years later. So you kind of went on faith or did you have information that you really could build muscle as a vegan? No, no. I, I just kind of went on faith. Um, at that time, um, I actually went vegan after reading John Robbins' Diet for New America. So that was a really influential A lot book. of people did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then in terms of the information out there for you know, muscle building and nutrition, nothing was vegan. Like there was nothing about plant-based proteins or anything like that. So, but I just kind of looked at it and kind of figured out, well, if they're telling people to eat, you know, chicken breasts and milk and whey protein and steaks and all that stuff, I was like, well, let's see, what do I have? And I have, there was soy protein powder back then. There was, uh, you know, tempeh was there, tofu was there, beans, of course. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just switch out these things. Peanut butter. Everybody eats peanut butter. Um, I just swapped out a few of those meat product or the animal products and, and, and put in plant-based products and went from there. And it obviously works. So why are you vegan then and now? What's your reason? Yeah, the reason is because I want to cause the least amount of harm as possible to myself, to animals, to any any living creatures and, and the the planet as well. And um, yes, if I can add one other thing, um, yeah, heart disease runs in my family. So I kind of saw that as uh, something I wanted to, I wanted to um, do it for my health as well, but that's kind of like a secondary reason. I think that's true for a lot of us. I didn't even think it was going to be healthy when I did it. I, I thought if I don't eat all this protein, if I can't periodically do Atkins, I, I'm going to be obese and have a terrible life, but I could just no longer cause the suffering to the animals and voila, mm -hmm. you know, you do this and you kind of get everything. Yeah. So you're a competitive bodybuilder, and so is Holly. So I want to bring her on. Holly Knoll is co-owner of their gym, New Ethics. She's a competitive lifter and, like Ed, a member of the plant-built teams. We want to find out about that. Uh, she's also the owner of Fit Quick Protein Waffles and the uh, previous host of the YouTube show, Vegan Shortcake. <laughs> Welcome, Holly. I'm kind of like an onion. If you just keep like pulling away the layers, there's something else that I've done. So, um, you know, yeah, Renaissance it's, kind of, woman. it's kind of a long list. So I, I asked uh, Ed about why he became vegan. How about you? Yeah. So, uh, I became vegan. Um, I was sort of like off and on uncommitted vegetarian, um, for a lot of my teenage years. Um, I got into punk rock and, you know, there was this ethos of, of straight edge, which I really got into. Um, and then a lot of my friends were trying things like vegan just because they were activists and sort of same reason as Ed wanted to do less harm and kind of cause less harm to the world. Uh, and one day I was waiting for some friends in a co-op in San Francisco and I picked up a zine and it was just a really short, maybe one page, couple paragraph article about um, the connection between uh, the oppression of sexual um, and reproductive rights of human women and uh, the oppression of sexual and reproductive rights of uh, dairy cows and um it really put together, you know, the things that I was fighting for, uh, women's rights were a huge part of my activism at the time. And it just, it just like clicked like a ding in my head that, you know, I was being a hypocrite by, by saying I, I want to 
you know, create free uh, sexual and reproductive rights for, for women and a lack of oppression there, and then actively oppressing the same exact gender and sex of another species. And, and that just didn't feel right to me. So um, I was in the mission and I had a burrito and I gave the burrito to my friend because it had cheese in it. And that was, <laughs> that was the end of it. And I've been, I've been vegan ever since. Um, and that was Gosh, a really long time ago. <laughs> wow, wow. I love those last animal product stories. Just um, educate us a little bit, Holly. I think people my age uh, missed straight edge because we came too soon, and then a lot of our <laughs> listeners missed it because they came too late. So I, I hear about it uh, uh, conflated with veganism quite a bit. What What is or was the straight edge uh, part of the punk movement? Right. So, uh, straight edge is, um, straight edge is really cool. I found straight edge when I was 12 years old. Um, so I really, uh, avoided a lot of the things that I could have made mistakes in as uh, a teenager. And in my twenties that a lot of my friends unfortunately fell, um, fell victim to, but straight edge is, you know, different to different people. To me, what it means is, um, no drinking, uh, no recreational drug use, um, of any kind. And the general ethos of trying to create integrity and strength, um, without trying to avoid problems. So, uh, trying to not use anything as a crutch and deal with your own problems on, on, your own and find coping mechanisms that are a lot more healthy, which a lot of people get into fitness when they start uh, being sober and trying to find a healthier lifestyle. Um, and the, the connection with veganism, I'm not totally sure exactly where that came from. Um, I know that in the nineties, there was a really unfortunate movement called hardline uh, that had um, a much more intense stance on a lot of things. Uh, religion tied in religion tied in. Um, and they really, Really talked a lot about veganism, so I would say that probably in the early '90s, that's when it started to to go hand in hand. But I think that generally, punk and hardcore have an undercurrent of um, politics and trying to do better things in the world. And you know, I think that veganism has a tendency to run down that line as well. Um, people who are trying to do good things in the world tend to, you know, find veganism. Yeah, yeah. And it also, you know, this idea of being disciplined and everything does go along with, with the whole fitness thing. So mm -hmm. you guys are not only just fit for your own health, you're actually competitive fitness people. So, uh, Ed, we'll start with you. Mm -hmm. Why do you compete? And, and, and what gets you to the gym? I mean, the amount of training that you have to do you know, to somebody like me who grudgingly goes because I know I need to, <clears throat> I'm just in awe. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I am, I'm straight edge as well and have been since I was 15, though so going on like 23 years now, quite a while. Um, but it's about feeling better and using um, natural, you know, creating that from natural experiences versus drugs and alcohol. So when you exercise, it releases endorphins, yep, endorphins in your system and you feel better afterwards. So I kind of, I don't want to say, you know, addictive is kind of a funny word, but like, I really enjoy that feeling of, um, that I get from, from working out from like lifting weights and things like that. So it kind of started there, but I, um, the reason I compete is because I mean, going back to when, when I first went vegan was there, there wasn't anybody, there was very few people out there that seemed like they're promoting fitness and veganism at the same time. And like the, the general, um, view of veganism seemed to be like this, the weak and scrawny individual who's not getting enough protein. So it seemed like a, it seemed like a challenge to be like, okay, let's see if I can do this vegan and put a good, a good, um, appearance on the vegan movement. So that was a big thing. It's just, I, I want to show people that you can be strong. You can be healthy on a fully plant-based diet and, and, you know, years have gone by, but it's still the same kind of, uh, goal. So how long have you been a competitive bodybuilder? I've, I've competed in bodybuilding just two times. This was in 2010 and 2011, and I've since competed in uh, a few different sports. I see. Okay. And Holly, you're, part of, you're both part of the plant-built team. Is that right? Yep. Okay. So tell us what that is. Yeah, so uh, so Plant Built is a team, an international team of vegan athletes that um, historically has gone to a big convention in Texas that is a non-vegan convention called the Naturally Fit Games um, and competes in a wide spectrum of sports. So um, last year, Ed and I both competed in weightlifting, which is um, 
a sport that is two movements, which are the snatch and the combined lift, clean and jerk. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are more rare uh, movements that those are more rare movements than um, powerlifting, which is squat, bench and deadlift, which is what we competed in Um when the plant built team met up before that. Um, and before that I sat one out, uh, because we were doing a photo shoot or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and Ed competed in CrossFit. Yeah. So, um, sort of a wide range of, of sports there. Um, and before that you were competing in, in bodybuilding. So mm -hmm. I joined a little bit later in the, um, in the team, uh, Mm -hmm. in the team's history, but I've been, I've been at every single plant built as a supporter. Yeah. Uh, Holly and I have been together since the uh, for a little over five years, and so we've been both supporting one another. Um, and either one of us or both of us have been involved with Plant Built every year. Competing is rather stressful, so um, <laughs> for the health of our relationship, we did not compete together for quite a long time because it's really nice to have somebody else be there and not be invested in an actual competition. They can grab your bags, they can stay up with you, they don't have to maintain their own strength and um, and whatever else, and. It's also worth noting that when you're competing and doing photo shoots and doing all of the responsibilities that come with being on Team Plant Belt, which, you know, is a huge honor, but it's also a huge responsibility, um, that very often we're dieting fairly hard at the end, too, So, which can be sort of a recipe for not being quite as nice as you should be to one yeah. another. Yeah. Um, plus, not enough food tends to, uh, tends to create fights. So we've done it quite successfully, um, and it feels pretty okay now, but it was kind of scary going into competing together. So I, I know from Robert Cheek and from other bodybuilders that I've spoken with, there's a lot of this dieting toward the end and the even, I think, restricting fluids and all kinds of odd things. Now, that yeah. wouldn't apply to weightlifting. Is that right? It, it would, but it's in a different um, realm because in weightlifting, um, it's the same as powerlifting. People fall into weight classes. Ah. So they simply want to change the number on the scale versus bodybuilding in um, aesthetic sports like that. It's a it's not really about weight class so much. It's about what you look like. Yeah. So um, I want to I want to definitely say that um, if there are athletes out there that are looking to make it into a weight class um, and they're considering things like dehydration, carb cutting, uh, sodium cutting, potassium, stuff like that, um, that you read about online with people who manipulate those things um, to make it into a weight class or, you know, to look really shredded and, and this, quote, dry look, um, do not do that without somebody helping you uh, who's a coach who's done it before, who knows what they're doing. It can be dangerous and it can be bad for your health. Um, and if you're a lifter, you can really hurt your lifts by doing it wrong. Um, so I just like to say that before I, before there's like a lot of discussion around manipulation of, um, of fluids and different things like that. Because uh, sometimes people will overdo it, sit in the sauna while they're dehydrated for too long and it can get kind of dangerous. But yeah, um, but yeah so we both compete in, in weight-based classes um at the our last competition we only had like four hours in between weigh-ins and when we were lifting so there was only so much manipulation we could do uh because you can only make your body bounce back so quickly in powerlifting, you usually get 24 hours so you can do a fairly hard cut and you have a full day to recover from it um i've never competed in bodybuilding so that's not something that i can speak to but edge sure. obviously has well, when I look at you, I can see you guys because we're doing Skype, and I often wish that this show were video because it's just so interesting to get the visual of some of my guests, particularly those in, in a field like you're in. And now I'm only seeing you from the shoulders up, Holly, but you look, I would even say, delicate. And the idea <laughs> that you are out there doing lifting these heavy weights, it, it's just it's surprising and exciting. You know, it's like, Oh my God, she's vegan and look what she just lifted. <laughs> well, thank you. I really appreciate that. I'm kind of a tiny person. Um, and, uh, and it's funny. My mom always jokes like that too. She always comments on Facebook videos and she's like, what are you doing? Be careful. Uh, but, well, uh, you know, one thing I love about weightlifting is, uh, I call it magic because you learn to use the explosiveness in your body and technique really intensely. Um, and the levers in your body to kind of manipulate yourself around the bar, to pull yourself around the bar. Um, and to lift weight that you couldn't do strict. Um, and so you see smaller people lifting bigger weight in, um, in weightlifting because you can kind of dig into technique over, uh, over strength. But powerlifting was really fun, too. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, it's all amazing to me. And and I'm also surprised to hear what a variety of, of things that you do, because sometimes I've, I've talked with people in these sports and they do one thing and that's what they focus on. And you seem so able to to do a lot of stuff. So what are you both working on right now? Let's see. Well, we own a, a gym in Oakland, California called New Ethics Strength and Conditioning. And what a so, great name. Great name. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you. I just want to pause him for a second and just say that you, you mentioned how difficult it is to get into the gym. We actually live above our gym. Nice. So nice. it's that's, like it's, solidly 10 steps from where we're sitting right now that's, to that's, our gym. It's by design, though. That's why, that's why it's like that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that's our primary thing. Um, and we both lift regularly and we're both, um, kind of really looking for the next thing we're going to compete in. But our primary thing is, um, just having our gym be successful and, and, you know, be successful advocates for the vegan movement. Yeah. And, and it's fun. Um, you know, our, our, our community has reached a critical mass where it's growing so rapidly. We can almost not keep up with it, which is the best possible problem to have. That being said, if any listeners out there in the Bay area, we would love to see you. Um, I also own fit quick protein waffles, um, and protein mixes, which we have a donut mix as well. So it's kind of like pancakes, waffles, and donuts. Um, and that is sold through the New Ethics store. Uh, it used to be sold through Vegan Proteins, but they are switching to coaching, which is really, yeah. really incredible as well. Um, so as far as what I'm working on, um, I am my long-term goal is setting some records once I get into master classes. So that's 35 and up. Um, so I've got a couple of years on that. Um, and Plant Built will compete next year, not this year. So essentially what we are is off-season athletes trying to build up all of our lifts really intensely so that once we get to competition in like, say, 18 months or so, um, we can be really, really strong and totally crush it um, wherever our team competes which is kind of unclear right now um other than that man just trying to live the raddest life possible i don't know <laughs> hikes go on you know travel hang out with our really awesome community and mm-hmm. um and our dogs oh how many dogs what kind oh two we have two dogs one is a rat terrier um and she's eight and um she's the princess of the family and then we have a frenchie boston terrier who is three and he is a little menace of a monster but we love him yeah Yeah, dogs make the world go round and and cat people i mean i love cats too um I'm just discovering the wonder of uh, dogness later in life, and it's splendid. <laughs> so what kind of dog do you have? Oh, he's a little schnoodle. And when we adopted him, we didn't know that he had heartworm disease. So oh, no. we had to go through all that, and he's fine. And just, uh, you know, uh, n- no offense to my darling husband, but this little dog is the love of my life because I can never <laughs> do anything that annoys him. So whenever you're using fitness to promote veganism, Ed, how, how do you do that? Um, <laughs> we're, we're vegan branded shirts, uh, hashtag vegan on all of our Instagram posts. Um, lift big weights. Lift big weights. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Basically just kind of be in the realm. Um, what else do we do? I mean, I, I think that that's it. I think that when go to events when they're, you know, in LA or Portland or the Bay Area and try to, you know, just, just make sure people know we're out there. Yeah. I mean, the plant built team itself uh, yeah. has a tendency to go to um, fitness festivals and just crush it and get first place, second place, third place. Almost every one of our athletes um, places in all of their sports. And that makes a fairly large impact. And, and the plant built team was how many members last year? Like- 34, I think. 32. Okay. It was over 30. Yeah. Um, uh, I should have a better answer to that. Sorry. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, just generally trying to like lift big, um, you know, look the way that makes us feel really solid. Um, we post, I, we post our food fairly often as well. Yeah. We post our food. We try to post our lifts. Um, we post a lot of our lifts and stories. So if you're on Instagram, you can watch that. Um, and, uh, and I think it's really interesting. There was this concept of a weak, scrawny little vegan, um, and when people see somebody who uh, looks good, who's strong, maybe stronger than they are, maybe has the goals that they want, and they realize that for for selfish reasons they can they can 
live this lifestyle. It, it's kind of, you don't have to take the risks that all of us took in the very beginning when we first went vegan, right? You didn't know it was going to even be healthy. Um, Ed was like, I don't even care. I'm going to do it. Let's go. Um, I was not even into fitness at the time and it didn't even occur to me. It was a purely activism thing. Um, and so, you know, you can go out there and you can say like, you can have all of your goals and, and maybe it'll even be easier on a plant-based diet or plant, plant-based diet. Um, and, and I think it's really worth noting that when I was working out with people who were Omni, um, I recovered faster. I, I, built cleaner and and that's that's something that people don't really realize and and it's a lot of the reason that you see um athletes in sports like ufc and football really digging into plant-based diets and and going vegan is because you feel better and you recover Recover faster and the food itself digests better and easier and so that creates a a place where as an athlete you can train more you can train harder you can go for it more and and that gives you a bit of an edge which i don't think that people talk about enough that's exciting stuff so if somebody in you're in oakland right goes to the new ethic um fitness center how is it different? Would I know if I was an omnivore just walking in that you had this vegan slant? A little bit. So we have different banners in our gym. We have a Sea some, Shepherd banner. Some are general fitness, but yeah, we have a Sea Shepherd banner. We have a plant-built vegan muscle banner. We have a Beyond Meat banner. What Beyond, else? Beyond Meat has super, super supported us yeah. through the years, and uh, and we super support them. They're a great uh, protein source. Yeah, but kind of like if a vegan goes to a like twenty four hour fitness, they don't want to be preached to about the benefits of you know animal products on muscle. So if an omni person comes to our gym. We do not preach to them about all the benefits of veganism. We let them tell us if they have questions. Exactly. So it's a generally like shame-free, judgment-free zone in terms of uh, basically everything, right? We want people to feel comfortable in their bodies and in their lifestyle and and in themselves. And what's really interesting about that approach is that um, we get a lot of people who are not vegan, who are not even vegan leaning. They just, maybe they live nearby. They found us online. We have a really, really fun and and interesting community. And so maybe they found us because their friends come here or they saw us online and they want to, you know, come do an awesome burrito potluck and, and whatever else. Um, and so they'll come in. And then after a while, um, same thing as we were saying before, like, Maybe you're in a class and, and the person who's lifting the most in the class is wearing, you know, a vegan shirt, vegan shirt and, yeah. and you're going to take note of that. You're going to be like, oh, wait a second. Um, and what ends up happening is uh, our really awesome um, Omni members, you know, will be like, hey, so I'm trying this meal prep or meal delivery service and <laughs> I just decided to go with the vegan one, you know, and it's really hard not to like just throw your arms in the air and be like, yeah. <laughs> Um, but people really lead by example, you know, sometimes, sometimes people, uh, get some success with the, um, more aggressive tactics and that's just sort of not the way we are. We're just like, Hey, we're vegan. A lot of people here are vegan. If you want to sit down and do a nutrition consult, it's all going to be plant-based, but if you don't, and you just want to come here and train and have fun and lift weights, then, you know, come in and party. And, you know, sometimes that has a a really good influence. Yeah. I am going to play that over and over in my head equating <laughs> lifting weights and partying never quite gotten that just exactly <laughs> on the same level so as i guess you're both fitness nutrition coaches so how does that differ from if somebody just went to a nutritionist and they're a regular person versus somebody who really wants to get fit or someone who's already an athlete how does that differ from if they go to a non-vegan person yeah, I mean, what what is fitness nutrition? What what do athletic people need to look for in their diets more than sedentary people? They need to look for understanding how food affects our bodies. Um, usually, people break that down into the macronutrients, so fats, proteins, and carbohydrates, and just kind of understanding like how those nutrients affect your body. Um, typically, how you what would you say? How would you adjust? How would I adjust? Yeah, like how, um, how would you adjust or or essentially what what I would normally say is like kind of looking at your total intake. It depends on your goals, of course, 
But some people want to gain muscle. Some people want to burn fat. Some people just want to perform better. So it really depends on their individual goals. And then we just kind of help them adjust um, kind of portions and things like that in order to make their food serve them better. Yeah. How how much more protein do athletes need, bodybuilders in particular, but really any kind of, of athletes? I think that there's been so much brainwashing for decades in the yeah. gym culture how much is it really? Um, so, you know, protein holds a higher um, place in people who want to build muscle, obviously. Um, I want to speak to what you asked before. I think um, with fitness, you really need to focus on things like nutritional timing a little bit more. Um, and if you have aesthetic goals, which obviously bodybuilders do, you're going to kind of move around those macronutrients. So you have protein, carbs, and fat. And you're going to time those around your workouts to create um, a higher chance of building more muscle. So Post-workout, you're going to have carbohydrates and protein, and you're going to have maybe, let's say, two or three to one um, carbohydrates to protein. So if you have 20 uh, grams of protein, you're going to have 40 or 60 grams of carbohydrates, and you're going to try to limit fat as much as possible. And that's really going to give you the best results in terms of absorbing that protein. The carbs are going to shuttle it into your muscles, and the protein's going to get in there as quickly as possible, whereas fat would slow it down. Um, so you're just going to think about that nutritional timing. And within that context, most bodybuilders um, are going to, or people who want to build muscle, right? I want to speak to to closer to what I am, I'm better about, but you're going to try to have, um, call it 20 grams of protein with every one of your meals. Um, usually somebody who is trying to eat in a more fitness, uh, oriented way, assuming they're not doing, um, intermittent fasting or anything, um, out of the ordinary, they're going to try to eat five or six meals in a day. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are going to be really small meals, high in protein. Um, and, I, I, I feel really uncomfortable, like, giving specific numbers, like, uh, 1.25 per body pound or, or of, of lean mass or whatever, um, because different people have different, uh, um, needs yeah. uh and especially the differing of um sports so a bodybuilder is going to need different nutrition than a weightlifter than a bo- uh, power lifter um than an endurance athlete uh and i also want to say that uh for the sake of um being a little bit on the nose we have a nutritional um pardon me, a seminar coming up that's going to be available on Instagram live and in Oakland. So if anybody actually wants to like ask us questions about it, that's going to be available as well. And you can find out about that on our contact pages. Um, But yeah, so higher protein is going to be a huge, uh, huge thing. And generally we'll say you need to probably be getting over a hundred depending on your size. If you're a much larger person, you might be aiming for 200. So how does a vegan do that? They do it with... Um, I mean, there's no protein in a vegan diet, so no, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we all died a long time ago. So, so we, we will not advocate the amount of protein in spinach because to get what we need, say 10 grams of, 10 grams of protein from spinach, do you need to eat like five pounds of spinach or something? Yeah, people we're, always bring up quinoa. We, we, we get that. Like all the protein does add up from all plants, you know, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds and, and whatnot. But we do try to have a specific, more protein-dense food in most of our meals. So if it's a protein powder, nowadays it's not soy, it's pea protein, rice protein, maybe hemp protein. Typically, pea and rice are going to be mixed together to uh-huh. create a better texture and flavor as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we eat tofu. We don't eat tempeh as much as I th- I'd like to, but that, that's really <laughs> up to me. I don't I don't eat tempeh as much. Um, but we get, we get seitan. Um, we eat the... Beyond meat products, we eat field roast products, so completely vegan meat replacements. We're tofurkey, big fan we're of tofurkey totally slices. Totally in support of analog meat um, products uh, in the vegan vegan world. Some people aren't, and you know, more power to them if you're trying to watch your sodium. If you get, you know, you have any issues uh, uh, sensitivities to wheat sensitivities and gluten. To gluten. That's that's a totally different thing. But neither of us do, and um, and we we really <laughs> we really like them. Right? They taste good. Uh, they're high in protein. They hit our macronutrient goals, and and they make us feel good. So yeah. 
Um, so it's, it's worth noting that some people would be like, Oh, you know, they just said a bunch of processed stuff and, and that's totally fine. If you want to avoid it, um, the, the more, uh, what is it? Saturated protein products, the yeah. really high strict protein products are going to feel, um, like they're closer to the more processed side than the whole food side. Um, Yes. So that stuff, but also just, you know, going back to black beans, chickpeas, all that kinds of stuff, as well as hemp seeds and pumpkin seeds. Like we try to add those. Um, I like to add um, seeds to smoothies. So that's an easy way to get more protein there. And then we try to add beans and stuff like that to, you know, lunch and dinner. Yeah. And it's worth noting that if you're going for the like analog meat products, you can choose something like, say, you're going for Gardein. You can go with the, you know, breaded, fried protein product. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something more like the chicken scallopini patty, which is going to be mainly protein and a little bit of fat and carbohydrates. Yeah. I discovered that chicken scallopini and made it for Christmas Eve. I talked um, to the vegan Moe's who have the wonderful cookbook NYC Vegan. And uh-huh. they said, you know, it, it's fine just the way it is for regular night. Christmas Eve, you're going to want to play it up. So I mm-hmm. made this wonderful sauce with fennel and garlic and cherry tomatoes. It was it was stunning. I mean, people <laughs> treated me like some kind of chef, which was really fun. Yeah. So... Everybody, this has gone so fast. Uh, the website is newethic.net, um, New Ethic Gym on Twitter. Uh, we'll put all of the URLs on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Thank you guys so much. You are such winners on the platform and off. And thank you so much for all that you do. And we're going to be continuing in in this little series about protein and things of that nature. Next week, we're going to be talking with uh, Bruce Friedrich, who's just written a book with Kathy uh, Freston called Clean Protein. And we'll also be talking uh, with the wonderful internist, Dr. Michelle McMacken. So be sure to tune in for that. And again, if you want to find out more about Ed Bauer and Holly Knoll and about our first guest, Paul Shapiro, and his book, Clean Meat, just check out the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Thanks to our engineer, Jeff Comfort. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for having us as part of the Voice of an Awakening World. And thanks to you all for listening. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Often, people desire prosperity but are not willing to pay the price. What is the price? It is sharing, giving, loving, and caring. Prosperity needs an inflow and an outflow, just as a body of water does if it is to remain fresh and clean. As we create an outflow by giving in love, we experience the inflow of a greater awareness of good in our lives. Perhaps you've been led to believe that for every winner in this game we call life, there must be a loser... The truth is that you rarely lose by giving. In giving freely without thought of return, we set in motion a great momentum of goodness. When we give, everyone is a winner. You have something unique to offer the world, something no one else can give. Whatever your gift, know that it is precious, give it freely, share it in love. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. It is the birthright of each and every one of us to live an awakened life. Most religions and spiritual traditions teach us that we need to adopt a certain belief system or follow some prescribed steps to attain a state of enlightenment. A long-held belief about awakening is that only a small number of people destined to become gurus or spiritual teachers can attain it. It is certainly true that until recent times, only a small number of people on the planet had attained this state of full self-realization. These saints, mystics, and spiritual masters were seen as special. They certainly were at the time. However, times are changing. 
This message was brought to you by T.J. Woodward, host of Awakened Living Radio. Learn more from T.J. on his weekly podcasts. Episodes are available on UnityOnlineRadio.org, iTunes, and Google Play Music. Sometimes you might feel so alone with your problems, you don't know where to turn. We invite you to call Silent Unity, the 24-7 prayer ministry, where someone is waiting to pray with you every day at any hour. Listen and relax as you hear the beautiful words affirm the highest and best outcome for you and those you love. No matter what's going on in your life, Silent Unity is always standing by. The toll-free number is 1-800-NOW-PRAY. Be sure to grab the latest issue of Unity Magazine and read the interview with Ram Das, the iconic spiritual leader of the 60s. He's now focused on how to age consciously. Spiritual author Thomas Moore reflects on grumpy old men and women. And Barbara Bowen writes a touching story about her experience as a caregiver to her mother with dementia. To subscribe to Unity Magazine, go to unity.org and click on Publications. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify. Spotify.